In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today's scripture is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, 25 to 27. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along on bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the heat, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be signed for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as the promise, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. The meditation this morning is in the context of the season of the cross, the season of Lent. It's in the context of our Lenten series of crucifixion, meditating on a bigger vision, and it's in the context of Toby's baptism. We're looking at Exodus and the Passover as a way to think about the cross. There's a story that circulates in Canadian hockey legend about um, the transition of a former NHL player to become a coach for the first time. And he had his first assistant coaching job because he was hired by his former coach, who was known to be a kind of a guru 
in motivation to the players. And so this player turned coach tells a story when he was hired as an assistant, he rushed into the head coach's office and he said to him, he said, uh, you, you gotta, now that I'm a, I'm a real coach and not a player anymore, you've gotta give me the book. And uh, the coach looked at him and said, what do, you, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, the, the book that you use and you've used for years to motivate us. And he said, uh, so the experienced coach said to the new coach, he said, uh, there's no book. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, all of those wise sayings that you sometimes put in our lockers and to encourage us or to challenge us or to, you know, take our eyes off distractions and focus on the game and on the team, like all those amazing things that we've, you know, come to, to memorize over the years. So the seasoned coach said to the, the new coach, he said, uh, let me ask you this, do you, do you drink tea? And the new coach said, uh, yeah, I, I drink tea. He said, well, if, if you drank red rose tea, he said, you'd realize that on the end of every tea bag, there's a little string, and on the end of that string, there's a little piece of cardboard with a saying on it, like a fortune cookie saying. The other coach said, yeah, 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 I, I remember that. He goes, well, those wise sayings that you're talking about, that's, that's where I get them from. Just get them from the end of my tea bag. It's a wonderful story, it's a funny story. It's even hilarious when it's told better, I think, by real hockey people. But it reminds us about something that we're trying to achieve in our celebration of the season of the cross this season. And that is that, that there's a possibility, maybe even a probability, that we have inherited a way of thinking about the faith and even some of the deep truths of the faith. And we've come to, though, be able to or want to or be limited in expressing these deep things by nothing more than a simple cliché. Three simple steps, four spiritual laws that we seem so often satisfied with, with a short clip or a short synopsis of some real truth. And, and we seem quite happy to really avoid going deeper for the whole story, for the bigger picture, for the deeper and fuller meaning. What we're doing is, is captured by theologian uh, Beth Felker-Jones, who sort of counters this temptation that we have to go to the cliche, to the simple, to the easy. And she says that scripture gives us a dense, layered, and rich account of God's saving work. And our gratitude for salvation can only grow if we make it a practice to pay attention to the many layers of goodness. In other words, she's inviting us to go deeper. She's inviting her students to go deeper in their understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and all that that means. We're going to start the series, well, at least 
in the shadow of Fleming Rutledge herself, we're going to start with our series here in Knox with our pastors and our staff. By getting at the bigger picture of Jesus' cross through the lens of the exodus of Israel, which is a lens that takes us way, way back, hundreds of years before Jesus came. And so we're getting a wide angle on this story. It's the story of Israel's harsh captivity in Egypt. It's the story of Moses pleading to God on their behalf. It's the story of God coming and rescuing them. And it's the story of God inviting Israel to smear blood in their homes and to share a special meal of the lamb as a sign of God's love for them, as a sign of his rescue in their lives. There's a few things to keep in mind as you make that connection. That connection with the story of Moses and the story of Jesus, with the rescue of Israel from Egypt and with Jesus' death on the cross and eventually his resurrection. First of all, the blood itself is important. But in the story, as Mosin read it to us, one of the things that's clear is that it's not the blood itself that keeps the destroyer at bay. Just like there's no magic in the water, there's, there's no magic in the blood. What Moses does in the recounting of this story, in quoting God and then also quoting himself as he passes this on to the children of Israel, is that he emphasizes the saving presence of God in the story. The blood is the sign of God's salvation, but Moses quotes God saying, when you do this with the blood and when you share this meal, I will pass over you. I won't destroy you. And so God puts himself in the middle of that story. And Moses actually seems to go beyond this emphasis of God. Later on in verse 23, he says this to the children of Israel about their celebration. He says that God will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses. It's like an overemphasis. God just says, I'll pass over you. But no, Moses takes the, the small point and says, no, God will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses. And so the blood becomes a sign of God's power to save and his power to protect. Moses stresses God's protecting presence. The emphasis in the Passover is, is twofold. Passover means a rescue from the life of death. And the Passover also means a deliverance from slavery. There's a kind of a, a twofold thing that's going on in God's saving power in the story of Israel. And the active presence of God that Moses 
talks about that we see in this story of God's rescuing his people from death and delivering them from slavery is, is our themes that are picked up as we celebrate the Lord's table. When we celebrate the Lord's table, we recognize that there is an active presence of God. The earliest Christian communities connected Jesus' death on the cross with his position as the Passover lamb. They connected his death with the Passover and they connected the exodus with his resurrection. This is clear from the earliest times. The Apostle Paul, and not only him, but the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, just a quick interlude. One of the things that you notice in the story of Exodus 12 is that the lamb, the perfect lamb that was killed, the blood that was used to paint on the houses, and the lamb's flesh that was eaten, the lamb is not pictured as a sacrifice for sin. That comes later in Christian thinking. But in Israel's story, the blood of the lamb reminds them of being rescued from being slaves in Egypt. And indeed, in John's gospel and all of the gospels, the connection between Jesus and that final meal with his disciples is linked thematically and also on the calendar with the celebration of the Passover. And so it becomes clear to those early Christian communities that the meal that they are sharing with Jesus is the meal that is in the long history of their story of Jews, but that something new is happening. It's interesting also, isn't it, that when Jesus is raised from the dead, the thing that he does with his disciples is that he shares meals with them. Like the follow-through of that Passover meal. And so in this way, what we get is we kind of get an expansion, a kind of, of, a, kind of a prior input to the nature of Jesus' death on the cross. This is what theologian Scott McKnight writes. He says, Passover involved the death of a lamb and the smearing of the lamb's blood with the hyssop branch and the door. The blood protected from God's wrath and liberated Israel. If this is what the Passover was, then this is what Jesus was doing. He was storifying his own death at the Passover, claiming that his followers, by ingesting his body and blood, were smearing blood on themselves to protect themselves from the judgment of God against the oppressive, violent, power-mongering leaders of Israel and Rome. He goes on to write, what we're dealing with here then is the metaphor of liberation. As Israel was set free, so many will be set free, but from what? The context in Exodus and Isaiah provide the answer from captivity and from oppression. It is the story of liberation from sin and the oppression so God's people can live in the new community just as they were designed to live by God. The context for God's 
significant saving act that formed Israel into a nation is the rescue from Egypt. The context of God's salvation in the first instance as a people is a political context, the context of Egypt. And you actually can't read the New Testament without remembering that the context of Jesus' death and resurrection is the Roman Empire. From his trial and from all of the details, he was murdered by Rome. He was murdered in the context of the political power of the Roman Empire. And most of the New Testament including most of the Apostle Paul and much of the Apostle Peter's writing, and certainly the writings of the Revelation of John, picture Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the alternative to the power of Egypt and the power of Rome. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, and that's the day when we remember that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. It was the earliest apostles' way of thinking about Jesus and making a parody of Caesar, who was so desperate to ride into cities that he conquered on a horse with a fancy chariot because, because Caesar was desperate for praise and desperate for power. And in Jesus coming in on a donkey, he's undermining that in giving himself to the power of Rome freely and therefore taking the control out of Rome's hands, he's undermining the power of Rome. And in saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's, Jesus continues on his political teaching in order to show that the kingdom of God is our highest allegiance. Crucifixion of Jesus is a way in which God uses to weaken the power of Rome. A funny little twist that when we stand back and through the eyes of faith read the gospel story, we realize that Pilate wasn't in charge of Jesus, even though Jesus was his political prisoner. But what we realize is that the purposes of God in Jesus' seeming acquiescence to the cross is exactly what God was doing in order to usher in the kingdom of God. The second theme that I think is really interesting, and particularly on the occasion of the baptism of a baby, is that the passage doesn't end. This two descriptions of Israel's rescue from Egypt, the passage doesn't end without this reflection by Moses that there's going to be a conversation with children. He says, when you do this, and verse 26 is the focus of this, when you have this celebration, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. As wonderful, I think, in this passage in the Old Testament, which is filled with some pretty gruesome things 
and which is kind of a story that makes you want to keep them from children because they're too innocent. And in fact, Moses invites the Israelites to actually remember and to have a conversation about this with their children. Let's think about remembering and what that means, because this is a season of remembering. And this is a season where we're going to be focused, amongst other things, on the Lord's table. But remember this, that when we ask God to remember, it's not like we're reminding God of something that God doesn't know. And in the Jewish way and in the biblical way of remembering, it means something slightly different than our literal understanding of what that means. When you pray for somebody and you ask God to remember them, you're not reminding God of your aunt's problems and trying to get God's attention to sort of recall your aunt's situation. The biblical idea of remembering is to invite God to enter into a situation actively, to be present in that situation in the same way that God entered into the situation of the children of Israel. You're calling upon God to enter, to be present, and to be active. Think of the things that we we pray for. We pray for people's healing. Because what we're praying for is for God to enter into those situations and bring that healing that only God can bring. The thief on the cross, when he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says, it's not just about, you know, Jesus, just think about me for a few moments in my miserable estate. No, he's saying, save me. Do something about this. Call upon the active presence of God in order to enter into my life. When we gather at communion and we say that we remember of Jesus, this is more than just calling Jesus to mind. It's more than just a few moments of of thinking about Jesus for a change. Instead, it's the expectation that the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is going to be present in the meal as the disciples gather together and as they share in that meal. What does this service or what does this celebration mean to you? Your children will ask you. The Old Testament vision of teaching children is life-based. It's relationship. It's talking in conversation when you're sitting in your house and when you're coming and when you're going in the context of daily life. That's the vision that runs through all of the Old Testament. One Old Testament thinker, Victor Hamilton, says that the purpose of such parental answers is not to explain the origins and the case of something, but to explain its significance, what it means to you. Why is it important for us? Why is it important for you? The education of children by telling them the history of their ancestors who were freed from oppression is peculiar and is unique to Israel, Hamilton argues. He says that other ancient civilizations, in order to teach children their faith, they teach mythology. But Israel stood apart because parents engaged with their children about the specific acts of salvation 
by God in history. It's a completely different thing. It's a completely different thing. Pagans raise their children by telling myths about mythical gods. Israel taught their children by teaching about a God who entered into the human situation in Israel. And Christians teach their children about a God who enters into our situation himself. There's no other story like it. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Son of God became a human being who lived and died and rose again for Toby and for all of us. It is the center of our thinking. A number of years ago, we moved into our neighborhood, met some people through our local school, and one day they invited us to celebrate the real Easter with them. And I, I just preached at the real Easter in my church, you know, a few days before. They, of course, were from a Greek background, and the Orthodox Easter lies after the Roman or our traditional Easter. So I went to the, to the, to the meal, and it was nice weather was outside, and they were barbecuing a lamb. And I, I don't know about many of you, but I was, grew up in a home, even with some Scottish background, we never ate lamb. There were mumblings about how you could never get good lamb. It was mutton and it was raw, rough. And, you know, my grandparents and my parents made excuses. I don't know. But, but we never ate lamb. And then in the summertime, those same friends invited us to go to their local church festival. And the menu was lamb. And I started to make the correlation, even as someone with theological education and even as a pastor, started to, started to make a more active link between lamb and the celebration of Easter. A link that I really hadn't made before because my view of the cross had not been informed, had not been sort of expanded, had not been deepened by this understanding of the lamb. And so I went back and I started in the early parts of the Old Testament and then went all the way through to Revelation and to realize that the risen Christ is the Lamb upon the throne. That the risen Christ is the Lamb who was slain. That the risen Christ is the Lamb who is worthy of our praise and our worship. And my story of what Jesus accomplished on the cross was really, really deepened with that study of the Lamb. Because I realized in the linking of it with the Exodus that Jesus' gift to us, that Jesus' achievement on our behalf was more than simply the sacrifice for our sin. 
It was also the rescue from the oppressor. And in the New Testament, there's this uncanny way where the writers put both of them together. The gospel writers and the writers of Peter and Paul, that Jesus is the lamb who was slain, that he is the perfect sacrifice. But before that developed, he was the lamb whose blood was smeared on the homes of Israelites in order to remind them that God was entering into their oppressive situation of slavery. Jacob and Natasha, you did it. You said you were going to do it when we visited earlier in the week. You stood up in front of this community and your family and you committed yourself to raising Toby in faith in Jesus Christ. As you raise him, don't raise him with the cliches that the culture and the church are tempted to raise him with about who Jesus is. Paint a big picture. Paint a picture about his rescue. Paint a picture of a God who has come into the world to protect him from evil. Paint a picture of the God who is in the midst of his own history, who is saving him from the cultural lies, from the temptations to live according to money and to all kinds of other temptations that desire to shape him and to shape his soul. Paint a picture of Jesus that he needs for his salvation. Paint a picture of Jesus that is fascinating and convincing and compelling, that tells the whole story of why God would become a human being. Michael Goldberg, a Jewish thinker, says this about tradition and about storytelling. He says that tradition properly understood enables us to tell our communal story in each of our own individual stories such that in the process we become transformed. For then we no longer simply study or recite the story, but instead we become the story. This is just the beginning of our Lenten journey. It wasn't a sermon to decide and define everything. But it's just a simple sermon on the occasion of Toby's baptism to say that as you look at the New Testament and then through the lens of the New Testament back to the Old Testament, you realize that there's a bigger, deeper, wider vision of God's mercy extended to us through Jesus Christ. And if we're going to become disciples and to continue to be disciples of Jesus in this day, in this time, and in this world, let's use this season of the cross to open our hearts and our minds to that wider and deeper vision. A modest request for a transforming reward. In the name of the Father, and the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit.